You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by David Henkel, a retired UNM professor and longtime Quaker active in local, national and international Quaker and social justice issues. David, welcome. Thank you very much, Rabbi Neil. So um, what is Quakerism? And I, I've just learned that may not be the right term. Well, it's convenient for the present day, but the Quakers grew up not as a uh, as an oatmeal company, as many people think, <laughs> but actually as the Religious Society of Friends in the middle of the English Civil War during the middle of the 17th century. And the it was a time of religious ferment, and there were a lot of different groups of people who were dissatisfied with the offerings that they'd grown up with or which were uh, promulgated by the state. And uh, the Quakers are one of these groups of, of seekers who believe that there is a unique relationship between human beings and the creator. And so there is no need for priests or an ecclesiastical structure in between, particularly one which is politicized as the state church. Mm. And so the Religious Society of Friends believed in a direct connection through their meditative practices with the Creator and the practice of a righteous life based upon those principles. Friends came out of a, a Christian tradition, of course, but has expanded widely in that we're able to understand and connect with the spiritual paths followed by many other earlier and later uh, faith traditions. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of a unique relationship with the creator, um, partly because, um, I guess, the, who is that creator, I guess? How can we have a unique re- relationship with that creator? What does that mean exactly? Well, in, in, from the standpoint of the Religious Society of Friends, every human being has within his or herself an element of God in the language of that time, or of the creator. Some people speak of it in terms of nature now. But it is, in fact, that which connects us to the prime spirit, which is in all creation. Now, we have personified that in the Western tradition, often in God, and sometimes God is uh, gendered. Mm -hmm. Um, I say we, meaning the people of the Western world. But there are many other ways of considering this as well, so that Buddhists do not have a God figure, not Mm -hmm. have a a deistic... uh, Um, reality for them. They have uh, uh, a different sense of relationship in spirit. Um, Taoists, the same thing, where they will recognize that there are actual spiritual elements in everything that we see. Uh, The friends, uh, having come out of the uh, religious tradition of Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, originally defined that in terms of God the Father. Mm -hmm. But I think um, over time came to recognize that These are words. Words are symbols. But what we're really after is that impulse within us that connects us, which makes us responsible to one another and makes us equal before before all. So, I mean, that's an extraordinary shift, though, isn't it, from from God the Father to the spirit of um, the divine spirit within creation is within us. That's that's a huge theological journey. It, um, it prompted some resistance, as you might imagine, right. and uh, Quakers were imprisoned and uh, 
punished in various ways. And the term Quaker actually comes from a time when, uh, at least according to the tradition, uh, friends were hauled before magistrates to be mm. uh, um, castigated for their nonconformity and uh, were told that they should behave in thus and such a way. And the response was, we stand here quaking in the sight of the Lord. And so the magistrate scoffed and said, you're Quakers, and sort of tried to dismiss that as, uh-huh. a, as a, an irrelevance. So uh, that's a fascinating bit of history I, I, I never knew. I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of, as you said, the prime spirit in all creation, because, because what theological response can we give to that? Um, when you said it, it, it's that which uh, shows that we're equal with all creation, and yet within creation you have animals at the top of the food chain and animals that aren't, or you have larger species. Are they all the same? Are we all the same in nature? Um, it seems very, well, very modern, um, very um, ecological, I guess. It comes from a more ecological um, fusion with, with theology, which I find particularly fascinating and appealing. But then what does that mean in a faith context? Yeah, well, I think it's important to recognize that uh, two things. One is I'm speaking from my personal experience. I'm not speaking on behalf of a body of people. Secondly, there have been evolutions within the Quaker community over time so that there uh, was this period of quietism and and contemplation, which Mm -hmm. characterizes most of our history. But there's also been times to return to a more evangelical frame of reference, an exhortation of uh, the divinity of Christ, Mm -hmm. which early friends did not accept. They accepted the, um, the leading role of Christ as a teacher, as a path shower, and used language of the middle of the 17th century, which was appropriate to that time. Um, But there are also evangelical friends. There are friends, I think a lot of people think of Quakers as being in silent worship. Mm -hmm. But there are also friends which have pastoral communities where there are pastors who give sermons. And then there are evangelical friends. So there are um, missions and so forth. But so there are different versions of all of this, as there are in most of our traditions. But I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that you can have a community that and, and understanding that you were talking from your own perspective, but nonetheless a community that can hold um, a Christological perspective, an evangelical Christological perspective, and at the same time hold somebody who says, "I believe that God is the Spirit within all nature." How how does that hold together, practically speaking, in a community? Well, oh, I think with some difficulty. Right. Um, I think that that is why you have separations between different versions, as you do in Judaism, as you do with Catholicism, different kinds of understandings. So I wouldn't think that most friends would say that um, the inward light, as we refer to it, is a light that uh, is founded in all, um, all living creatures. Mm-hmm. Some of us might believe that, some might not. I think originally friends were speaking to the connections between human beings because that's what we understood. But those were also days in which we conceived of God the Father as a kind of, um, uh, shall I say, a kind of a larger version of a human being. Our imaginations took it that, that far. So I think that what you find is that in our form of worship, when people speak, when people minister out of silence, the attempt is to get down to that quiet place where we're not being disturbed by noise from the outside of the daily news, uh, whatever it was, maybe before we came to meeting for worship, 
but something which impels us to share something that seems to be beyond our individual selves. That is, we recognize that when you meditate or you are in worship, and those are separate ideas, mm -hmm. uh, you can come to a, a, an insight which really is your own. It's for you. But then there are insights which, in fact, are for the rest of you in, in, who are worshiping together. And so people will rise and speak to those things which are, they are impelled to do by that sense of spirit. Mm -hmm. This does not lead to a discussion or to a response if it's done properly. It normally, people are able to absorb that and to sit with it and to say, what message for me is in that, in those words that I've just heard? And sometimes the message doesn't appear to be for you and you set it aside. Right. And sometimes it speaks strongly to you and it brings you deeper. I think one of the challenges we have, and this goes back to your question, is how to listen without editing what we're hearing as mm. we hear it. Can we accept it and listen to it and look for the truth that may be there for us? And if we are not able to, can we set it aside or must we react? I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea that if we calm ourselves, meditate, then we can find a truth that transcends us. And I'm intrigued by that, I guess, from a postmodern perspective of every text has a reader. No, there, is nothing, there is nothing that is in this world that is not the world that I experience. So when you say, you know, when we put aside the news and, and uh, all the noise, we're still, everything that, that we experience still comes from that which we have been guided to by our society, by our culture, and that which we have formed ourselves. So is, is it actually possible to access something core and external to ourselves? Uh, and if so, how? I'm not sure it's external to ourselves. It may be internal to ourselves. So that the, the external world which we experience, which, to which you just alluded, is something which is common to all of us. But there's something more than that in all of us. It's not just our existential experience of life. Uh, that brings the French tradition into a more mystical relationship mm. where there is not only faith, <clears throat> pardon me, um, but there is also a commitment to expressing that faith in deeds. Mm -hmm. But that has to be anchored. And the anchoring goes beyond the individual experience. It is the reaching, it starts from the individual revelation maybe, and then reaches out into others. And from a friend's perspective, it's not just reaching out to the other people with whom you are worshiping at the moment. It is the entire world. So that as I look at you, or I look at anyone else, what I'm really experiencing is that larger sense of connectedness between us. And it is that in you that I'm really addressing if I'm doing my spiritual work properly. I love, the, I love the idea of this, and I want to learn more. The one thing that worries me is if I am so aware of the light within the other, I think I would lose myself, by which I mean there are 7 billion people on this planet, you know, billions more creatures, you know, plants, and so on. There's a, a, an ancient Jewish text that says that you know, if you put your ear to the ground, you can hear an angel telling each blade of grass to grow. But if you, if you did that, you'd go crazy. Because if you're experiencing that which is greater than the external world itself in everything, I don't know how, how, how do you ground yourself in that without that overload of otherness and 
glory or wonder? How do you hone it and center it? I think you are present where you are. That is, you are present with the individual or small group of phenomena that are in front of you at the moment, and your responsibility is to be present with them and not be distracted by all the other possibilities that, you're, that are not in front of you at the moment. Quakers also, I mean, early on, had um, an almost um, encyclopedic familiarity with the Bible. So there were religious texts from which they drew inspiration, but not um, dictation. Uh, mm-hmm. For friends, the inward light is primary and the Bible is secondary and other religious ah. texts nowadays so that different friends find greater meaning and help from different kinds of uh, spiritual sources, some of them uh, very much related to traditional large religions, some of them more particular. So the issue isn't really for us, are we all saying the same thing or are we all hearing the same thing? It is, are we present in each other's company at the moment? And so as the angel whispers to each blade of grass, which blade of grass am I closest to? I think that's my sense of that. I'd like to hold that thought as we take a break. I really love that thought. Thank you. We're uh, listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich. My guest this evening is David Henkel uh, from the Community of Friends, uh, otherwise known as we've explored as Quakers. Um, uh, David Henkel being a retired UNM professor and longtime activist in the Community of Friends. And we'll be back after our break. You're back listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and my guest this evening, David Henkel, um, who just before our break um, mentioned something really extraordinary. The, the inner light is primary and the Bible is secondary. Um, and I want to explore that in terms of authority uh, within the community. Who chooses authority then? And, and can anyone do anything and say, this is my inner light? One can, and then the question is whether others who are in your presence as you say that uh, experience the same truth that you feel in that. So it's not anything goes. There have been uh, friends in the past who have taken extreme positions that didn't seem to quite reflect that connectedness, and others objected. Mm-hmm. Um, some were read out of meetings and so forth. But let me, well, let me turn to the authority question because mm. this is interesting, and it also, I think... Uh, speaks to how friends organize themselves differently. Um, we, uh, our basic unit or, of congregation is the monthly meeting, and this is the small local group that comes together once a month to conduct congregational affairs. Mm-hmm. We worship every week and sometimes multiple times a week, right. but we come together once a month for business practices. Those uh, meetings may, in fact, be associated geographically in a regional meeting. And actually, I'm the clerk. We call this as our term of the person of the moment who is um, holding the meeting's responsibilities in front of it for the region of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a presiding clerk for our meeting. Uh, sorry, I said clerk. That's the Englishism. Clerk is what I really right. mean in Americanisms. Um, I, I knew what you meant. I <laughs> knew that. I think it was your accent which prompted that. So we have a presiding clerk at the local monthly meeting level. We have a regional meeting which consists of a number of monthly meetings. I happen to be the clerk there, but this rotates over time. And then there is finally a yearly meeting, which is, uh, is the association of all the regional meetings within it. So in our case, Intermountain Yearly Meeting uh, come, brings together friends from Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, mm-hmm. um, Arizona, a little bit of Texas, right. and so forth. 
So um, we come together in a yearly meeting, and it's the yearly meeting we conduct business as well, as fellowship and worship. And the authority actually comes at the monthly meeting level. Uh So the fact that you are aggregated into other larger groupings does not mean that the yearly meeting tells local meetings what's right or what they should be doing. I see. In fact, when we have queries, questions which are posed for uh, contemplative and active purposes from the yearly meeting to the local meeting or even within the local meeting, the purpose here is to get people to engage at that level. So if the query comes from the yearly meeting to the local meeting, we determine what we think about those things and respond. In the local meeting, we often have queries, and that is for the individual to, to work right. with and to respond to. So the authority structure really comes out of that inspiration, that leading that is, again, drawn from that light but then is sounded out or is received mm. in a larger way by a community of friends who worship together and who may, in fact, challenge each other, uh, may expand on some of the notions which are raised. So it, it isn't um, – and there are, also, uh, there are also ways of, I think, uh, accepting that kinds of behavior deselect people themselves from right. following that way, which we probably should get to <laughs> before we leave this conversation. I'm intrigued, perhaps before we go there. How does that work, uh, for example, with other faith communities and the interaction between the Religious Society of Friends and other faith communities? How, how, who, who interacts on behalf of your community? Well, um, officially speaking, it would be the presiding clerk of the moment. Right. And this is a two- or three-year um, term that someone takes on. Um, but I'm here with you today because another member of our meeting who is on the Interfaith Leadership Alliance mm-hmm. – to represent our meeting, but he's not an officer, right. suggested that you had this uh, program and that I might be one of the people with whom you might be speaking. And so I agreed to do that. So there's a connection there between right. that person, the, interfa- the Interfaith uh, Leadership Alliance, and you as you, but also you as Rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom. Right. And I, the other thing to be said is that we may show up differently. We report back to the meeting, not speaking for the meeting, speaking to the meeting of our experience in this other place. Right. So as I'm engaged, for example, with the Faith Network for Immigrant Justice, Indeed. I will go there, but I won't represent our meeting in any official way. I will be a person from our meeting who may right. be the only person for our meeting, but who then brings back to our meeting what I understand the deliberations were about. And then we will decide how we will interact with that. There's one other thing. Because of this, uh, the importance of the individual leading, it takes us a great deal of time to reach corporate decisions. And this is frustrating um, (laughs) to a lot of other people. It's frustrating to us sometimes as well. But we find that what we're after is not consensus but unity, which is a much harder deal. But when you get unity, you're solid and you can progress without uh, revisiting all of the possibilities all the time. You have made your decision from a place of common spiritual depth and agreement. And that's a challenge. So this is a way in which we, I think, are somewhat different from the decision-making structures in other denominations. I'm fascinated by the idea of unity within a faith tradition. The old old joke about one room, two Jews, three opinions um, (laughs) is very prescient, I think. How how is that possible? How do you get unity? is unity. The skeptical side of me says probably some people didn't like it and decided not to go to the meeting where you voted on it. So you end up with unity. But but actually being more generous to you and your tradition, um, 
what does that mean for everyone who's in a room, who's engaged in a process constantly to come to a unified perspective? Um, is there actually a point afterwards whereby somebody says, actually, I know I was there then, but the inner light within now says, I'm terribly sorry, but we're not unified. Or I was not unified, but now I am. Yes, this is – so um, maybe the best way to describe this is to remark that our meetings for business are actually meetings for worship with attention to business. So we begin in worship and uh -huh. the – uh, the more secular kinds of discussions we might have coming out of that are grounded in that worship. Right. So as people express their point of view about what action should be taken, other people try to take that in in a worshipful way. Mm -hmm. If they have a need for clarification or they have a disagreement, they then rise and express their point of view. And then right. that gets considered by the whole. At the end of the day... If there is not unity, the clerk says, I don't think we have unity, friends. And so we, the decision is deferred or laid aside. There are situations in which um, most friends would support a proposed action. Mm -hmm. Some others might not quite be there, uh, but they will not stand in the way of the decision. Okay. So they will say, I'm not yet with you. Uh, you can make the decision. but." Right. If the decision is taken under those terms, then even the person who has stood aside is expected to support the decision. I think this, this is a fascinating way of leading a community for me because we try to reach consensus in our community and many faith communities. Um, but I, I, guess, I guess it's a time element, as you said, you know, to reach unity on one particular thing within a within any faith community must take a particularly long time. It can. The more difficult the decision, the longer the time. We have a practice where new business is um, introduced, and then, after being clearly explained, is laid over for a month until the following month, when people have had a chance to right. sit with it and to to look at it in different ways, to uh, almost hold it up to the light, if you will. And maybe that's exactly what we mean, holding it to the right. light. Is, is the end goal to bring all of humanity into a unified perspective? I think the end goal is to f for us to bring ourselves into unity with, with humanity as best we can and to share the light that we have, recognizing that there are many paths. Right. So we are not um, we're, we are not committed to a, a single definition of the right way forward. What we are committed to is the equality that we all share in trying to, to find our way forward. Right. I'm, I'm particularly you've got me thinking about in the Mishnah, the first rabbinic commentary um, on uh, the Torah itself, written or put together about one or two hundred of the Common Era. Um, and the rabbis will say, the majority of the rabbis, or rabbi so-and-so says, but the rabbis say. Um, and you'll always have the majority and the minority opinion recorded. Because, I guess maybe this is a Jewish thing, because you're never going to get unity. Um, so this is why I'm so intrigued by this, hearing this from you. Um, and I've always been brought up holding together, celebrating the fact that you can have a majority opinion and a minority opinion, and a year, two years, a thousand years later, you can turn around and say, you know what, actually now the minority opinion from back then is the majority opinion now. Um, 
that seem how does that seems perfectly reasonable <laughs> <laughs> because we are not um, we're not stationary beings we right. are constantly evolving we are dynamic and so the truth of one moment uh, may um, be the result of our understanding of that moment mm. but hopefully our understanding increases over time and consequently our ability to be open to change and to adapt to it will too now one people could say well this is wishy-washy but I think our senses, for, for example, you, you refer to the Mishnah, and I was thinking about that in terms of the way in which early friends thought about the Bible. That is, the Bible was written by human beings. We believe it was not, it may have been divinely inspired just as the Quran was divinely inspired, but it was written down by human beings. Mm-hmm. And the portions which were included and mentioned were decided upon by human beings, and there were others, lots of other things that were excluded. So our feeling was that humans are fairly uh, fallible. And so we respect um, the the inspiration and the sincerity that came out of a lot of that. Some of it was political, of course, but some of it wasn't. And so um, we can love that, but we have to go deeper to that place where that inspiration came from. And that lives throughout time. So let me ask you perhaps our final question. Which is which goes back, I guess, which connects what you've just said to what you said at the beginning. If the Bible is divinely inspired, if, if we understand from a, a liberal perspective that the Bible was at least written down by people, men um, uh, of an ancient community, um, reflecting on God as they saw God. If you're saying that, that that was divinely inspired, at least, then what does it mean if many people in the community don't believe in God as creator or lawgiver, but as God as the light within all being, how does that light within all being inspire people to write down a text? Well, I think it's the same notion as people sharing um, their leading and meeting. It's just that it's committing it in a written form. So that uh, a person or persons who write down gospel texts or epistles um, will be, I think, drawing upon uh, that divine source uh, to find the words and the message. For those who, to whom that particular um, source does not speak, there may be other sources that do. Mm-hmm. So if I am used to hearing, as I was growing up, uh, biblical um, references, Am I no longer able to hear from other traditions? Can I no longer appreciate that portion of what Christians refer to as the Bible, which is the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch, the five mm-hmm. books of the law? Can, is it, does that not speak to me? Do the various sutras of the Buddhism not speak to me? Mm-hmm. It, they may. They may, in fact, they may, in fact, amplify my understanding and my respect and my searching. And I think that's the last thing is that we don't think that there is an end point to this. It's continuous. So there's a continuous revelation element here. Right. Lovely. I've, I've learned so much from you. This has been so fascinating. Um, I want to thank you, David Henkel, um, from the Religious Society of Friends, um, for really profound answers to today's questions. And I hope that you will come back because I really want to learn more from you and, and try to understand more of that light within you and others, and also that search for unity which um, so appeals to me and so challenges me at the same time. So, so thank you for, for being here this evening. I'm grateful to have been asked. Thank you, Rabbi Neil.
So you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.